Now, this morning we depart a little bit from our normal practice for this week and uh, next, and to look together at uh, our confessional uh, standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, our normal practice in church here in Chalmers is to work through Bible books or sections of books systematically. We do that about 50 Sundays out of 52. And we do so because God inspired His Word systematically. He gave us books, and so we work through His Word in that way. And therefore, our confidence is that it is God's voice we hear, because that's how God inspired or spoke through the pages of Scripture. But it's fine from time to time to stand back, as it were, from that and to look at a theme or a doctrine or a truth about the Christian faith and to draw widely from Scripture. Now, as a church, um, Chalmers Church, like many others, is uh, ruled by Christ through His Word. And therefore, we hold the Bible to be the supreme rule of faith and life in the church. But like many other churches in our tradition, we have what we call a subordinate standard or statement of faith. And uh, this is it, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, I'd encourage you to pick up one of the copies of this uh, in the vestibule, or you can get it online. It's the basis, along with the Bible, of our constitution as a church. And along with us, the basis of most of the churches in uh, the Presbyterian churches in the world, and certainly has been the bedrock of doctrinal or Christian truth in the Scottish church since the um, uh, 17th century. Now, the Westminster Confession is 400 years old, okay? And one of the striking things about that is that what we're looking at today has been the bedrock and the basis of the church's life for four centuries. And we'd be looking at the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a book about Reformation. This is the 500th year of the, this, the Reformation in Europe. And a Reformation, if it is to have any lasting impact, it needs to be expressed in concrete, long-lasting uh, forms. And the confession of faith that was written by the Westminster Divines uh, 400 years ago has become the basis of church accountability, church structures. It has been how disputes have been solved. It has held the church together for centuries. And it is what is the basis of our church here in uh, Chalmers. Let me encourage you that studying the confession is not simply for those who are academically minded, nor is it simply for those who are historically interested. It is heartwarming. It is enriching. It is soul-edifying stuff. Now, uh, when we embarked on the Westminster Confession series, we only had two weeks thus far last year, there was a little bit of concern in my heart as the minister, as the preacher on this, that I would be the only one who would find it edifying. And if you get into the middle of a sermon series, and that is the case, then that's the preacher's worst nightmare. But it is striking that as we have looked at these chapters in the confession, that the response we have had from you has been unusually strong in the sense that 
this is something that we need to wrestle with. And, and within a church like Chalmers, in some ways it's odd that we don't wrestle with what it is that determines who we are. I mean, I am accountable to you and to the confession. All our elders are accountable to this. And it's what people have bled and died for. And I think for the first time in the Western world, if you think of the whole Western context, for the first time in four centuries, a, a doctrinal basis like the Westminster Confession of Faith is, in a sense, up for grabs. Is it going to remain the basis of the faith of the church? It is wonderful stuff. Now, in terms of a reading, we are going to read uh, the Confession, chapter uh, 3. But I want us to read from the Bible because the confession is based on the Bible. And uh, turn with me, if you have a Bible, to uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 38, page 944 in the church Bibles. Now, a doctrine like predestination, if you don't know what that is, I'll explain it in a minute, or election, often is seen as controversial or difficult. Or confusing. Let me just encourage you that the New Testament writers never ever see it as such. None of them write to churches to sort out disputes in this area. And the doctrine of predestination or election is picked up again and again by the New Testament writers and it's found in all the purple passages. So if I read the Bible with someone who is dying, where do I go? Romans 8. And there's predestination. And when you read it to people in that situation in life, it brings profound reassurance, not doubt. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what then can we say, Paul writes, in response to all these things? What can we say, in other words, in response to the fact that God foreknew and predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. What can we see in response to these things? That if God is for us in that way, then who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? who will bring any charge against God's elect, that is, who will bring any charge against those whom God has predestined. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
But I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, let me just put that into the context of election or predestination. Now, you may have many questions about this, but suspend these questions for a moment. And just, this is what the Bible says to you if you're a Christian. If you're here as a Christian, that before the creation of the world, God foreknew and ordained and decreed that you would be redeemed. You would be saved. And if that is true, if your salvation extends not back to the point you made the decision to believe, uh, not even as far back as the cross, if your salvation extends as far back as before even the creation of this world, then you can be sure in your heart that nothing, nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, faith in the gospel is not us laying hold of Jesus Christ. It is out of all of eternity being laid hold of by God through Jesus Christ. And that is a wonderful, wonderful, enriching thing. Now, but it's not easy. It's not easy. And there are things today that you will not comprehend. You will understand them, but not comprehend them. And if that is the case, then you stand alongside the likes of Luther and Calvin and the great reformers and great church figures of history who, in light of a doctrine like this, allowed it to lead them to grasp the majesty and the supremacy of God, allowed it to flood their hearts with assurance, but recognized that in their humanity, our finiteness is not infinite in our ability to understand and fathom these things. The greatest risk is you go home and have your lunch today and dispute this with God because you cannot understand it. Don't do that. Now, you'll see on uh, the service sheet there are some notes that will help us uh, get our heads around uh, this. And then I've uh, printed out to a copy of chapter 3 of the Confession. Just to say that uh, we've already studied chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1 is of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, chapter 2 is on God and the Holy Trinity. They're online. You can listen to them. Um, and there's some articles as well on the website. Chapter 3 is God's eternal uh, uh, decree. Now, in terms of the notes, we've dealt with the first point, studying the Westminster Confession of Faith. Why are we doing it? Let me say something now about how we should approach this subject, God's eternal decree, predestination, or foreknowledge, or election, whatever phrase you wish to uh, use. How should we approach such a subject? Now, the very best minds in the 17th century were gathered together and they wrestled with this stuff prayerfully for months and years indeed to write this confession. This is the conclusion of the best of these theological minds. Look with me at section 8 of the chapter. Section 8 of the chapter. This is what they wrote. This doctrine, which means truth, 
of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence or caution and care. That men, and that means men and women, attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto. That men and women in churches who in their hearts submit to the rule and authority of the word of God as you do and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, that is, your certainty of the fact that you have been called to be a Christian, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford. This is what it should do for you. Matter of praise, reverence, admiration, humility, diligence, abundant consolation, to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So when you go home today and have your lunch, you're not going to dispute with God. You're not going to presume to be able to reason with the mind of an omniscient, omnipotent God. Rather, if you are in Christ, you will go home assured, praising, reverent, admiring God, humble, diligent, comforted, at peace. So let's pray for that. Our Father, by your Holy Spirit, may this truth so affect us with assurance, with praise of your glorious grace, with reverence, with admiration of your divine knowledge which is beyond our comprehension, humility before you, diligence as we live for you, abundant consolation, comfort, joy, and peace for our souls. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, a question. What is God's eternal uh, decree? Sections 1 and 2. Let me read these two sections with us. The language is archaic, um, but it's good to remember that the faith and tradition we stand in is centuries old. Section 1. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw his future, or is that which would come to pass upon such conditions. Now, my job is to summarize all of that in one sentence. Here we go. This is what it's saying, that from eternity, in other words, that is before creation, God decreed or ordained everything that has happened since and that will happen in the future. Everything. That's what it's saying. 
Here's another one-sentence summary. Everything that is happening in the world today, as in today, the 2nd of April, everything that is happening in your life, or as Benj prayed, the very fact of your life was decreed, ordained, known to God from eternity before even the creation of the world. Now, that's what it says, and you'll notice that all through the confession, it is laced with Bible verses. Now, were we to have the time to turn to them all, that would be really helpful. We can't. But I want you to accept that this is what the Bible says. If your mind has got all sorts of questions about comprehending it and understanding it and explaining it to yourself, just suspend that and accept this is what God says in His Word. Here's one last summary, not one short sentence, but three very short sentences. God's decrees are absolute and unconditional. They are not dependent or conditional on anything. God cannot react because how would He react to what are actions that are always within His control? Does that make sense? God can't react if God has decreed everything absolutely. Now, one objection to God's eternal decree is that surely this implies that God is the author of sin. So, if you look out on our world today, and if you say that everything that is happening in the world today, everything that is happening, say, for example, in the Middle East, everything is, ha- everything is, is, is ordained, decreed, known to God from eternity, how can that be? How can that be? Well, the Bible uh, deals with that, and it's a good question. And the standard way that theologians describe what the Bible says, often theologians make what the Bible says a little more complicated, is to talk about God's decrees that are absolute as being either effective or permissive. God's effective decrees represent all the good that has come to pass. God's permissive decrees embrace the evil that is in sinful actions. Now, think of it like this. Imagine our world today. Think of the terrible events that are happening in uh, Aleppo. It's very difficult for us to understand why it is that God, in His permissive decreed will, will allow these things to happen. But if they are not under the overarching, sovereign, permissive will of God, then what are you left with? You're left with a universe that is not controlled by God. You're left with actions in the world that God cannot do anything about. You are left with nothing to pray for and in essence, what you do is that you take the godness out of God. Or as Don Carson, some of you will know Don Carson, you de-God God. And you see, when you wrestle with these doctrines like election and predestination, all that we are doing, and this is why in section 8 of the Confession, it leads 
to a grasping of the greatness and the glory of God. One of the most obvious omissions in the church today is an awareness of the majesty and the greatness of God, the, 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 the humanizing of God. Now, let's focus for most of our time on the matter of you and I as human beings and the matter of predestination. Now, what does predestination mean? Well, it means what it says, that our destiny, predestination, that our destiny with respect to salvation has been predetermined. Or predestination is the outworking of God's eternal decree with respect to humanity, that before the creation of the world, God decreed, ordained, and I'm not going to try and caveat this or say what the Bible doesn't say. This is what it says, that before the creation of the world, God decreed, ordained, whether or not we would be saved. Now, you might think, well, is there a justice to that? Is there an injustice to that? But let me take you back to, to God. We're talking about God here and His otherness and His sovereignty and His majesty. Now, let's read through what the confession says in this regard about our predestination. And it is the subject of sections 3 to 7. And notice that it's chock full of Bible references, and I'll try and draw out one or two of them. Read with me from section 3. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels... Now, just notice that, that God doesn't save us for our benefit, primarily, but for His glory. If you think that's unjust or not loving, well, think of the otherness of God. By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels, I love to speak about angels today, but we don't have time. Let's just talk about when he says men, it means men and women. That's just the language of the, the day. Are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. In other words, some people are predestined, that is before the creation of the world, for everlasting life after the recreation of the fallen world. I mean, that just runs from time to time. Yeah? And some are foreordained to everlasting judgment. That's what the Bible says. Section 4, these angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, some to everlasting uh, life, some to everlasting death, are particularly and unchangeably designed. And their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. And this is to respond to an objection that might be raised. Well, okay, God could say at the very beginning of the ages before creation that some people are predestined to life, some are predestined to death, and there's A and B, and that's how humanity falls. But section 4 of the confession says that before the creation of the world, God knew exactly who they would be and exactly how many they would be. Yep. 
It's definite and precise. In other words, from eternity, God knew exactly who would... Now, if you are here as a believer, and if you're not yet a believer, you might be by the end of this, because all of time is about to intersect with space and time in your life now, as the God of the ages opens your eyes to see that from all eternity, He wanted your soul. If you are a believer here, God knew from before the creation of the world that you would be sitting here confessing faith in Christ. And if you can't comprehend this, don't try. Accept it. This is what the Bible says. And let it, by God's Spirit, do what the divine said it should do, which is to enlarge your vision of the greatness of God, to render you humble and diligent, and praising, and circumspect, and assured. The Lord knows, here's one Bible reference, the Lord knows, 2 Timothy 2.19, who are His. Sections 5 and 6 have more to say about those who are predestined to life. Let's read 6. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life... God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his general, eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting life, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature or conditions or causes, moving them thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. And what the confession is doing in section 5 is trying to exhaust any arguments that say, uh, that those whom God has predestined is anything other than an expression of His free grace and love. It is not because of any merit on your part, nor, the confession says, it's not because of your faith. And the point here, that if you are a Christian, it's not that you became predestined to life or acquired that status at the point you believed. You were predestined to believe from before the creation of the world. Now, you certainly cannot comprehend that. So don't try. And remember that Calvin and Luther, these great, great reformers in history, said, don't try to fathom the mind of God. Accept it. And by God's Spirit, let it reassure you. Now, there are numerous Bible references I could give. You'll see them on the sheet. You can follow them up yourself. Section 6, God hath appointed the elect, that just means those whom He has predestined or chosen for life, unto glory, so hath He by the eternal and most free purpose of His will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, but the elect only. Simple. Hmm. Now, the point here, and I'm just going to go through this really fast, unfortunately. The point here is that the obedience and death of Jesus, which is the center point in our salvation history, 
The obedience and death of Jesus and all that it achieves is not, is not the cause of your salvation. It is rather the means by which God achieved what he had predestined before the creation of the world to do for you. I wonder if you see that. Let me come at it this way. You don't trace, say you're sitting here as a Christian, you don't trace your salvation back to the time you came to believe. You don't do that. Because if you stood up here and gave your testimony, you would talk in your testimony about the cross. So you trace your salvation not to the day you believed or the time you believed, but you trace your salvation back to the day Jesus died. Christ died for my sins. But that wasn't the cause of your salvation. It was the means of it. And so when you give your testimony up here, rightly, you should trace your salvation back to the time before even the foundation of the earth which is exactly what Paul does in Romans 8, verse 29. Listen, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also... Now, here we get to the cross. Justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. The starting point, you see, is not the cross. Think of, let me read it again. Um, the benefit of preaching this twice is that people ask me questions afterwards, service one, and I can try and answer them in service two. Some of you are great at doing that for me. You see what he's saying? Romans 8, the great comforting verses in Scripture, the verses that you will find on every card that you give to someone who has been bereaved or who is suffering or who is sick, but people don't realize what they're saying. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. So you only get to the cross in these verses of assurance after all the stuff that comes before the cross. Yeah. I've tried my best to explain that in a cluttered way. It's being comforting for us preachers that John Calvin struggled as well. But, 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 Jesus' death and all that it achieves is only for those predestined to eternal life, the elect. And that's how the confession ends in section 6. But the elect only. Here's a very strong statement from the Lord Jesus in John 6. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. That, for the English scholars among you, future perfect. He knew what had happened in God's foreknowledge. Some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one comes to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
Now, they're shuddering statements. And so we come to section 7, deeply sobering for sure. Referring to those predestined to everlasting death, the rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. You know that song we sing, to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1. Now what the divines do in section 7 here feels almost, when you read that, deeply offensive. But it's true. God's judgment, indeed of us all, were we not recipients of His grace, is just. So the Bible says it is to the praise of the justice of a God who is so other from us. Now, let's pause. You've done awfully, awfully well. Predestination is the clear teaching of the Bible. That's what it says. The Bible says that before the creation of the world, God decreed, ordained whether or not we would be saved, you and me. God predestined you to everlasting life or everlasting death. That's what the Bible says. Now, I put a question on the sheet there, which the confession does not answer here, but answers in a later section. What about free will? So, what about free will? What about choice? Does our decision matter? Is it a total waste of time, you students, doing uncover with people? Does it matter? Or are we simply tiny pawns on a giant chessboard? Every move controlled. But surely there may be Bible verses in your mind. Is the Bible not equally plain that our decisions are believing matters and moreover that it's something we are to do? Yes, the Bible does say that. So let me just throw out a few verses. I'm trying not to... Um, there's nothing worse than a preacher text pelting. Apparently that's what I'm doing. Uh, I can't help that in a sermon like this. So the classic, classic verse that you will see on the other side of the cards. So if you go to the Faith Mission Bookshop, you'll get Romans 8 about predestination, and then you'll go to another section on Easter, and you'll get John 3.16. So what's John 3? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever is predestined. No, whosoever believes in Him shall have everlasting life. Or John 20, 30 to 31, the summary of John's gospel. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by election, no, by believing may have life in his name. Or Mark 1, 14 to 15, Jesus' entry onto the stage of human history. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the elect 
are called. He doesn't. He says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn round in your life and believe in me. The parable of the sower or soils in Mark chapter 4. Some accept. And then the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What do we make of this? Is it a contradiction in the Bible? Predestination on the one hand and a need to make a decision on the other. How can we reconcile divine predestination and human responsibility? How can we reconcile divine predestination with human free will? Here's the big letdown moment of the sermon. Yeah, you know the answer to that is that we can't. And it's not about finding a balance. Yeah? It's not about kind of finding this little bit in the middle or searching the New Testament epistles till you find the perfect explanation. You can't, because it's not there. It's not about finding a balance. It's about holding on to this and holding on to this. And you see in your evangelism, if you simply hold on to this predestination, you won't do any. If you simply hold on to this, human responsibility, it, you'll be crushed quickly. Or if people do come to faith, you'll think it was you. Hold on to both. Here's a helpful comment from one of the great reformers whose intellect way surpassed mine and many of you, not all of you perhaps, but certainly mine, who was wise enough in his astonishing intellect to recognize that his intellect was nothing, nothing to the wisdom of God. He wrote, no one should be ashamed to acknowledge their ignorance. We are not required to reconcile the divine decrees and human liberty. It is enough to know that God has decreed all things that come to pass and that we are answerable for our actions. Of both these truths, we are assured by the Scriptures. The tie which connects the divine decree and human liberty is invisible to us and incomprehensible to the finite mind. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high I cannot attain it. The quote is from Psalm 139. Notice where he goes for a quote. Such knowledge breaks me, cripples me, confuses me, disturbs me, causes me endless debates and discussions. Such knowledge is to, this is the Holy Spirit's work, wonderful to me. It is wonderful to us, surely as Christians, that we cannot get near the godness of God. So if you were to come up here and share your testimony, you'd be all shaking and nervous, but you'd be fine. You would speak about when you became a Christian. You would speak about a mom or a dad or a granny or a friend who read the Bible with you. If you're a student, you might speak about a mission week when you heard Michael Otts or somebody explain the gospel. That was the day, that was the time, that was the spark that got you going and searching. You might pinpoint a particular day, for most of us, a period of time when you became aware increasingly. 
Maybe you can recall the day you prayed, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I want to trust you. You might have prayed that or you might just have begun to pray it with the knowledge that you had become a Christian. And you would say that all up here and you would be right. But somewhere in your testimony, you would refer to Jesus died for my sins. And so your testimony would suddenly move from now to Calvary. But the right way to begin and end your testimony is before even the world was created and after the world that has fallen is recreated. Now, people use this illustration. Um, I'm not a fan of illustrations because I never can understand them, but you might find this helpful. Uh, you hear the word of truth, yeah? You hear the gospel, the invitation to come, and you walk through the door that leads you to salvation, yeah? So you walk through that door, which is the call of the gospel. And when you're outside the building, you look back and you see etched above the other side of the door, chosen before the creation of the world. Maybe that's helpful uh, to you. Now, as we uh, wind uh, up, uh, what difference does predestination make to us? In the New Testament, it's striking that predestination is never a matter of controversy or debate. So every uh, talk I've listened to in preparing this, or every book on the Westminster Confession, or every time you come to a sermon on 1 Peter 1, or Ephesians 1, or Romans 8, all the Bible commentaries say it's a very, very complex and difficult subject, predestination, and Christians really struggle with it. And they do, and I do, and you do. But interestingly, the New Testament doesn't. I mean, none of Paul's letters or Peter's letters are written to churches to sort out disputes about the relationship between predestination and human responsibility. They accepted it. That doesn't mean to say you don't wrestle with it and reason with it, because as we wrestle with it and reason, if I've done my job well this morning, wrestling with this will enlarge our vision of God, not cause us to dispute. The, but the New Testament writers keep referring to predestination, but in the purple passages, like Romans 8, like Ephesians 1, the great symphony of praise in Ephesians 1 mentions predestination three times. So what difference does predestination make to us? Number one, an awareness of the greatness of God. It heightens our awareness of the greatness of God. If you want to go to a passage to heighten your affections for the greatness and the majesty of God, you go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is chock full of references to God predestining and calling us to the praise of His glorious grace. Or Romans 11, after speaking about predestination in Romans 9 and 10, Paul writes the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable as his ways. It gives us an awareness of the greatness of God. So if you go home today and you walk along the sunny streets and you just get a glimpse and our finite minds, I think, can only glimpse this, of the greatness and supremacy of God. And your heart just kind of misses a beat, maybe of joy, but probably of fear. 
That's okay. Because you've just got your head around or your heart around the sheer godness of God. Secondly, assurance of salvation. Romans 8, these wonderful words we read earlier. We've got some visitors today. The last time I saw you, I think, was at a funeral of one of our elders, Sinclair Graham. Some of you will know Sinclair and remember him. These are the words I read to him just around the time he died, just before. What did I remind him of? Predestination. What did that do to his soul? Did it spiral him into endless questions and fear? Or did it, like uh, a bam, bring deep, deep peace to his soul? Of course it did. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. We often speak about salvation by grace, which is right, but when we speak about salvation by grace, sometimes we can kind of pluck that out of the air as like a concept. Yeah, How are you saved? Salvation by grace. There it is. But there's a dimension to that which is eternal. Salvation by grace is, is at the point of, of, of faith to be to, to, to all of eternity's purposes for you bear down upon your soul from eternity to eternity. And the fact that God purpose from before the creation of this world to save you and will see you in all eternity with his son brings you deep, deep and great assurance. I mean, there's no insurance document on our earth that is anywhere near that. Thanksgiving and praise for salvation. Thanksgiving that God predestined you, that God chose you, that God saved you. Now, before, and I'll get to this right at the end, the hardest questions here about loved ones who show no sign of faith. I'll get to that. Suspend that, though. Not because God doesn't care, but because God cares about you. As you walk home today and think that God in his mercy, and you did not merit it nor deserve it, the just thing to have done to you and to me was judgment. As you walk home today and you reflect that God in his mercy has wrested you from an eternal hell to an eternal glory. I mean, we're talking eternity. 10,000 times 10,000 years with Jesus. Before you bring your questions to God, bring your thanks to him. Thank him. A commitment to holiness, God has predestined you to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. There are three things that help you battle with temptation in your life. Well, lots more than three. Some very practical things. Yeah, you just stop looking or doing the things that cause you temptation. Much better than that, you look into the eyes of Jesus. Even better than that, you know that Jesus lives inside you. And, and, and beyond even that, you get your head around the greatness and the majesty of God. And, and you tremble and you're loved at the same time before his majesty. 
and you begin by His Spirit to be wonderfully, wonderfully changed. And then finally, encouragement in evangelism. When you have a clear biblical grasp of predestination with this hand and a clear grasp of our commission to go and tell with the other hand, not on the other hand, but with the other hand, you need both. Yet, yeah, don't join your hands together. Don't put your hands behind your back. Predestination and evangelism, that liberates you because when you are struggling, 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 you remember the predestination that God will convert those whom He will. It's not down to you. But you remember, too, the glorious privilege that God will use you and your telling to lead people to the point where their eyes are opened and they see for the first time that God from all eternity, destined them for salvation. And he's used you to open their eyes. So what difference does our predestination make? Remember section 8. Praise, reverence, admiration, humility, diligence, abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Now, finally, what I've referred to on the sheet is our personal response. Let me address the most difficult question, uh, briefly but clearly, I hope. Uh, the most heartfelt question some of you are asking isn't a question about global justice or God's right to judge humanity. God has the right to judge us all. The question you are asking isn't either, I don't think, and uh, I did check this out in service one. Uh, the question uh, you are asking isn't, uh, why did God choose me and not them? The question you are asking is about them. <laughs> Someone you know who has died without apparently any credible profession of faith or even hostility to God. Or perhaps harder still, someone you love who is alive and who shows no evidence of saving faith. Or even the least interest in Jesus. Now these questions are heartfelt, but in the end, I want to encourage you with all my awareness of the fact as a pastor of a church that these are not hypothetical questions but real heartfelt questions to leave them with God. Don't turn away from God because you cannot accept or understand what you never will. Don't turn away from God because you cannot control the spiritual destiny of another. We must let God be God and trust, I think, to His infinite mercy. You know, often at a funeral, well, in most funerals of people who showed no credible sign of conversion nowadays, if they're not humanist funerals, um, and if you go to a humanist funeral, they're just so fundamentally bleak. But most funerals that are not humanist funerals, most by majority, not perhaps the ones we go to, 
universal salvation will be claimed when somebody had no credible confession at all. And that's just not true. But what I will do at the funeral of someone who had no credible life confession of faith is often say, we trust them to the mercy of God. And over the years as a minister, I've been with enough people who have come close to the end of their life and indeed who have died, who have had no credible confession of faith, who write at the wire, listen. So I recall a man who I visited. Every time I read the Bible to him, he, he told me to shut up. And the verse I kept reading to him was from John, Mark chapter 8. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Of course, it was poignant as he lay there in his deathbed with nothing left. And just at the wire of his death, he began reciting these words. Now, I hope and pray that there will be many people in eternity who reached out to God in their hearts or their minds in the last throes of life. And the wonderful thing is, do you really think that if that happens, God is going to say no? What a wonderful evidence of saving grace it is that God's intersection from all of eternity into the space and time moment of somebody's life is even when their breath leaves them. Now, I'm not saying that to you as a kind of pastoral prop or comfort. I'm saying it to you because I see it and I believe um, it can and does often happen. If you have unbelieving parents or unbelieving children, you can't convert them. God can. Trust them to Him. And don't fight against God. And then this as we finish. Might it be that now is the moment, and this isn't the kind of evangelistic bit at the end of the talk, but it's not. So don't see it as a kind of shoehorn in. That It's just true, though. At any moment, at any time, in any church, in any activity we are involved in, maybe listening online, and uh, I know some of you listening online are really seriously engaging. I'm talking to them, not you. I'm talking to you online. I know some of you. You write to me, and you're seriously thinking about Christianity. Well, maybe this is the moment when God's plan to save you, His decrees, His decisions to predestine you is now about to intersect with space and time. And what has been obscure to you is now clear. What has been a secret has now been revealed. And God's eternal purposes to save you is now happening. Now, listen before I pray to these words of Jesus from Matthew's gospel. They have predestination in one hand and invitation 
in the other. All things, Jesus says, have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me. Come to Jesus. Come to his cross. And don't hear that as the invitation of a preacher. Hear these words come to me out of the, the very recesses of eternity before even the creation of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are deep matters. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit that has helped us to engage and listen and wrestle and understand these things, not comprehend them, for we cannot do that. We pray that your Holy Spirit will lead those whom you have predestined to salvation. And Lord, for those of us who bear people on our hearts, who have no credible confession, we entrust them to your mercy. We pray that what we cannot do, you would do. And trust even in the quietness of this moment that if you do not do what we long for you to do, that in your sovereign wisdom, we trust you still. Help us, Lord, now to sing a song of assurance, peace, and wellness of the soul. For we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.